when you have a child with an undiagnosed genetic condition, it's like you're in limbo land. It's a land full of uncertainty, causes you a great deal of anxiety, frustration. You just don't know which way your journey's going to go. And that's really hard. I think, you know, life's difficult enough when you've got a child with a medical condition or disability, but when you don't have an answer, it's that much harder. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Hi, and welcome to episode 47 of the Genomics Podcast. We spend a lot of time on this show talking about the scientific power of genomics. So I get to talk with a lot of scientific and medical experts about the genomics technologies that they use, like microarrays and next-generation sequencing, or NGS. And our expert guests always describe what these genomics technologies mean to them. But today, you'll hear about rare and undiagnosed genetic disorders and the power of genomics to help empower patients and their families. I'm joined by Heather Renton, the Executive Officer of Syndromes Without a Name, or SWAN, in Australia. Heather's daughter, Becky, suffers from a rare disorder. And Heather joined me to talk about Becky's long diagnostic odyssey and what genomics has meant to her and her family. Heather Renton, welcome to the Genomics Podcast. I'm really happy to have you on the show, and in today's show we're going to talk about rare and undiagnosed diseases. So what is a rare disease? Well, in the U.S., it's defined as a condition that affects 200,000 people or less, and in the EU, it's defined as a disease affecting fewer than 1 in 2,000 people. And maybe we can talk a little bit about what the numbers are like in Australia. But however you define a rare disease, I've read that there are as many as 7,000 rare diseases out there. And the majority of these are thought to be associated with changes in a person's genetics, changes in an individual's genes or chromosomes. Going beyond the science of rare diseases, there's an equally important human component that you've graciously agreed to discuss with us today. So... First of all, thank you very much for that. Before we get into some of the issues that we're going to talk about today, though, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and what brought you into the world of rare and undiagnosed genetic diseases? Sure. So my name is Heather Enton. I'm the Executive Officer of Syndromes Without a Name. And I founded the group six and a half years ago because I was looking for a support group that would support families with undiagnosed genetic conditions at the time. And there was SWAN UK, there was SWAN USA, but there wasn't a SWAN Australia. So to fill a void in the system, I thought you can whinge about it or you can do something about it. So I set up Syndromes Without a Name. Your daughter, Becky, was diagnosed with a rare genetic condition and it's called FOXP1 syndrome, right? That's right. So take us back in time. When was the point where you realised something might be happening with Becky that wasn't typically normal in kids that you thought, well, maybe there's some issue here? She went blue on her first feed. So that was the first indicator. But she went to the special care nursery and they said everything was fine. But because of that, we were linked in with a paediatrician. And at four months, she was still having trouble opening her eyes. At six months, the maternal health nurse said, oh, look, she's a bit floppy. Do you want to see a physio? 
She never slept very well. My son never slept, so I guess I was really tired and sleep-deprived and didn't really think anything of it. I just thought, oh, well, she's low-toned, we'll get that fixed up. And then eight months, a paediatrician said to us, she's behind in every area of her development. She's got global development delay and basically I think she might be having seizures. I want to order these tests. I want a head ultrasound, an MRI. I want to refer you on to a neurologist. And basically that was there's the door, at which point I burst into tears and wasn't coping too well, rang her up the next day and she said, look, just go to your GP, get a referral or wait to your early childhood intervention. So I just felt like a door had been slapped in my face. And I guess that's where our diagnostic odyssey began. We saw a neurologist when she was one and he said, look, I don't know whether she'll ever walk or talk. Wow. We saw a geneticist at 14 months and he said, oh, she looks like a child who's missing a chromosome or got an extra bit or deletion, but we're not sure what. So from there, we did a whole lot more tests. They thought she had a condition called congenital disorders of glycosylation, type 2X. They were trying to determine the 2X, what the X was. So we waited two and a half years for testing results to come back for that. Two and a half years? Yes. And then I was shown two slides with squiggly lines And the metabolic specialist said, oh, she doesn't have that condition. And I said, I beg your pardon? And he said, no, look, see these lines? She doesn't have that condition. So he said, look, we'll just wait for some more tests to come back because one lot of testing went to Belgium, one went to the Netherlands. And he said, look, we'll just wait and confirm. Those tests came back three months later. No, she doesn't have that. So back to the drawing board, back to see geneticists. Another long wait. Finally, another theory put forward, this time we think she's got Lowy Dietz syndrome. So both these syndromes that they diagnosed her with have the potential to be life-threatening. So another wait, this time they told us three months before we got the test results back, it ended up being six months with me continually saying, have they come back yet? So when they got returned, the geneticist said, look, it's a negative reading, but I think she's still got this syndrome. So back in the drawing board, again, another wait to see a geneticist. And we got approached to go on a research project. And that was through a TRIO project. TRIO refers to a type of whole exome sequencing test. So about 1% of the DNA in your genome is made up of exons, the DNA that gets translated into proteins. In whole exome sequencing, NGS is used to examine only these coding regions. Now, although these bits make up only about 1% of your genome, DNA mutations, or variants, in these regions can have a significant impact on disease risk. In clinical exome sequencing, NGS is used to identify DNA variants encoding DNA, including those that might be linked to disease. So when sequencing only the affected individual, this is referred to as singleton analysis. When sequencing both the affected individual as well as their parents, this is called TRIO analysis, and it's sometimes referred to as exome TRIO. So we had an exome TRIO. We waited 14 months for those blood tests to come back, and we finally got an answer. And I can tell you, you don't realise what a weight you carry around as a parent until you get the right answer. You go, oh, it just fits. It was like all this stress had lifted from my shoulders. Wow. So she was diagnosed with a gene variant on FOXP1 
and I joined FoxP1 ReConnect page and Facebook group, closed group, and we actually got to vote on what we wanted this syndrome to be called. Oh, they really? came up with a whole lot of um, names and everyone just said FoxP1 syndrome. So that was pretty cool. But having a diagnosis, it's empowerment. You know, you know a little bit more about what the future's going to hold. I've been able to connect up with families in Queensland who've got an older child and, you know, you've got a little bit of an idea of what the future holds. And to me, that's gold, but having that peer support connection. um, We've been able to try medication first off without trialling a few because we know it's worked for other families. You just mentioned this genetic odyssey, and we were talking a little bit about this genetic odyssey and what it's like for parents of children who are going through this genetic odyssey. And you also had a term that you used called, um, I think it's genetic limbo. Limbo land. Limbo so land. when you have a child with an undiagnosed genetic condition, it's like you're in limbo land. It's a land full of uncertainty, causes you a great deal of anxiety, frustration. You just don't know which way your journey's going to go. And that's really hard. I think life's difficult enough when you've got a child with a medical condition or disability, but when you don't have an answer, it's that much harder. Yeah. And we were talking about odyssey. The, this concept of odyssey, it suggests that you're moving forward. And this concept of limbo sort of suggests like you're not moving at all. You're no, just stuck in no, the same place. No. And look, when we've got this sequencing test available, yet it's not available for a lot of people who need it, that's really tough. It's like this is the best chance to diagnose a family. Yeah, it's not an offer to everyone. Mm-hmm. It's not covered by Medicare. People are being asked to pay out of pocket. From my understanding, a microarray gives you 15 to 20% diagnosis rate and exome gives you 30 to 50%. Yeah. I know when we looked originally many years ago at getting an exome when they first came out, it was $6,000 and we spent that money on therapy for my daughter because she didn't have a diagnosis. She didn't get any social services funding like Better Start funding. Because there was no diagnosis. That's right. Well, they chose 19 types of disabilities to support and they gave families $12,000 to spend over two years on therapy. But if you were undiagnosed, you didn't get any of that money. Oh, my gosh. So we've got the NDIS now, which is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. It's a fairer system. It's meant to be needs-based. But still, so many times I hear it's diagnosis-based. And if you turn up and say, my child's got FOXP1 syndrome, they look at you blankly. So unless you know how to advocate and get the most out of it, you're still discriminated, I guess, because your child's got a rare disease. Can you talk a little bit about what are the other kinds of tests that were offered to you? I mean, what kinds of tests did they run over that time that your daughter was... We had Fragile X. We had blood tests to work out if there was something amiss. To be honest, the tests weren't explained to me. Really? I was just written down. I had to go to the computer, Dr. Google, and it's all a bit of a blur. So we never saw a genetic counsellor. In the whole time? Never seen a genetic counsellor. Every lab report came back saying this family would benefit from genetic counselling. We still have not been offered genetic (laughs) counselling. Wow. Even the final report, the lab report did not match the geneticist's report. I had to ring him up and say, look, you've written she's missing different genes to the lab report. Really? And he said, go off the lab report. They merged our bloods and they had to ring up and say, can we get more blood? Ours is a classic story of what not to do. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Which is why I advocate so hard to make it better. Because when you don't have a diagnosis, you suffer depression, you feel helpless, you're in denial, you're emotionally vulnerable, you're isolated. 
all those emotions, they're really tough. Yeah. And you are really isolated. Lots of other people have an answer for their condition and people say, well, what do you mean you don't have an answer? You know, we're living yeah, in this day and age. Yeah, modern medical system, right? Yeah. It should be possible to get an answer. Yeah. And that whole exome sequencing, did you did you have to pay for that out of pocket? No, because we got into a research project. I see. It wasn't done on a clinical project. I so see. in Victoria, there's very little funding for clinical exoming. We're hoping that'll change, but it's not changing fast enough for a lot of our swan families, especially those who have kids with progressive conditions and regressive conditions. And something that you mentioned is that this kind of genetic testing is not typically offered, and it's something that people people typically have to pay out of their own pocket for? Look, you've got a few problems. People don't know about the testing. People are just struggling to cope with the day-to-day. There's a long wait to see geneticists. So they will do a microarray test because it's covered by Medicare. Currently, whole exome sequencing is not covered by Medicare. And they're proposing that it will be, but there's still going to be a gap payment. So it's not going to be a fair system. Those who can afford to pay the gap will have access to the test. Those who don't, won't be able to have the test to give them the wow. best chance of having a diagnosis for their child. It's not just a lack of technology that's preventing these diagno- this testing to be applied to the right patients. There's also, it seems like there was a lack of knowledge in the medical community Well, a there's bit. knowledge, there's workforce. There's probably not enough geneticists, there's not enough genetic counsellors, there's not enough scientific curators. And look, the government has put forward a precision medicine plan, they want it to work, but there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And look, we were fortunate, we got offered a trio, that gives you the best chance of having a diagnosis. I've been told, had we not had that trio, she might not have got that diagnosis. I don't know so much about the system in Australia, but based on what you've gone through, what do you think are the top, let's say, two or three changes that you'd like to see in the current health system that you think might improve access to um, better diagnostics for individuals with rare diseases? Well, they've got to have access to exome sequencing or whole genome sequencing to give them the best chance. And government need to support the whole process. And I'm talking about peer support groups at the end of the process as well. It's all well and good to give someone a diagnosis, but there's more to a diagnosis than a name. So really there should be a follow-up a month after you've given someone a diagnosis because they might appear to take it in in the consult, but a month after that's when things fall apart or when symptoms develop. And that's when peer support groups pick up the pieces, yet peer support groups don't get funded very well in Australia. And that's going to be a big problem to diagnose more people but not invest in peer support groups where the final piece of the pie. So that's where SWAN is so important and we don't get government funding. When you were going through that diagnostic odyssey, you were interacting with physicians. How do you think those physicians performed? Do you think that there was a need for better education among the physicians about genetic testing in general? Look, the geneticists, if you have an appointment with a geneticist, they will try and get one of these tests for you in whichever way they can, whether it be a research project or the clinical funding or the little funding that the hospital receives, maybe philanthropy funding. They want to do the right thing by the patient, but it's not always available. Right. It's not up to them. Yeah. And if you go to your GP, the average GP does not know a lot about genetics, genomics. Right. There are education programs being rolled out, so trying to upskill paediatricians, GPs. But even the average person doesn't know what tests are out there. If you're a new mum and you've been told, we don't know what's wrong with your child, 
you're not going to know what test to ask right. for or where to go. Yeah, that's right. So you're the executive director of SWAN, which is Syndromes Without a Name. So can you talk about SWAN here in Australia? I mean, sure. What's your mission? What are you, what are you trying to accomplish for, um, for the rare and undiagnosed disease community? So we estimate that 2,500 children are born every year without a diagnosis. That's here in Australia, right? Here in Australia. So in the UK, they estimate 6,000. So we sort of base it off theirs per population. And SWAN provides information and support to families caring for a child with an undiagnosed or rare genetic condition. We're finding out people start off with SWAN, they get a diagnosis for their child, there might be one or two in Australia, they're still no better off. So they stay with SWAN because that's where they've got their support network. So we do workshops, we do parent dinners, we run a play group, we have a grandparents group, we do family days, and we're going to start a siblings group up. So we do a wide variety of things to support families, and we do a lot of advocacy about better outcomes for a family, access to genetic testing, access to treatment plans. So we try and support the family in the best way we can that way as well. Yeah. In terms of the advocacy, what kinds of things are you doing to advocate for the for genetic testing? Okay, so I sit on a few committees because I find that's the best way to be able to advocate. So look, no one's looked at this from the patient's point of view to try and get better outcomes, better testing processes. We lobby governments, so I meet with politicians and say this is what it's like for Swan families, this is what needs to change. You know, when you don't have a diagnosis, there's a lot of isolation, limited knowledge of services, you don't know about access for genetic testing and there's a lack of awareness within the wider community about undiagnosed conditions and we run Undiagnosed Children's Awareness Day every year, the third Sunday of March, to try and spread awareness that we do have a problem here because there's a lot of families who don't have a diagnosis for their child yeah. and that's really hard to take in if you're one of those families with a child with a regressing condition. How is Becky doing today? So she's doing well, she's Going forward, slowly, slowly with her progress, she's got an intellectual disability, she's got language issues, she's got autistic-like features, opposition-defined disorder, ADHD. So her behaviour is probably her most challenging for me, maybe not so much for her, but for me. (laughs) And that's probably the hardest thing I find to deal with. I can cope with the intellectual disability, but the behaviours, they can be quite challenging and, yeah. You were talking a little bit about what the impact of the diagnosis has been on your life. Where do you think you would be today if you still didn't have that diagnosis? You'd still be in limbo land and it's hard to plan for the future. Like we made the decision not to have any more children after her because I couldn't have coped with another child like her. Everyone's got a different journey, different story, but... Yeah, look, I know how hard it's been. It took us five years of waiting for testing results over a nine-year period and no parent should have to wait that long. Nine years. Yeah. So this is why I advocate so hard for better pathways for other children and other families. Heather, thank you so much uh, for sharing your story. I'm so happy that you finally got an answer. Your daughter got an answer after all these years. And I wish you the best of luck with the advocacy. I just hope that all of the parents who are going through this don't have to wait nine years for a diagnosis. I think in today's modern medical system, I don't see any reason why people should have to wait nine years to get a diagnosis. They shouldn't. They shouldn't. So thank you for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. If you're interested in learning more about SWAN Australia, you can visit their website at swanaus.org.au. 
www.diagnosticoptions.au. You can learn more about diagnostic options for rare disorders. You can sign up for their newsletter or access family support networks. And you can even become a member or donate if you want to support SWAN a bit further. And hey, please subscribe to the Genomics Podcast and make sure you don't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get podcasts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Debesh Karmacharya, Director of the Center for Molecular Dynamics in Kathmandu, Nepal. We'll be discussing the Nepal Tiger Genome Project and wildlife genetics right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. <laughs>